Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. In a change to our normal schedule and out of respect for Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, this episode of Warfare was moved from Monday the 19th of September, the day of Her Majesty's funeral, to Tuesday, September 20th. Our normal Monday and Friday Warfare schedule will return next week. Hello everyone, welcome back to the Warfare Podcast. I'm your host James Rogers and I'm on the move across the US this week, heading down to work with the US Air Force. And in fact, it just so happens that this week marks 75 years since the US Air Force was established. So to mark this anniversary, I wanted to follow up on one of our listener requests by Rick Harrison. And he said that he wants us to cover more air power. So you ask and we shall deliver. So I've brought Lieutenant Colonel Whit A. Collins onto the podcast. Now, Collins is an aggressor pilot with a 64th Aggressor Squadron at Nellis Air Force Base, Nevada. He is also a real-life Thunderbird, not the puppets with the strings, of course, but a USAF Air Demonstration Squadron Thunderbirds pilot, where he is lead solo pilot and slot pilot. So... I thought the best way to cover the history of the US Air Force was to draw on Collins's remarkable knowledge to hear firsthand about what he thinks the best fighter jets in history really are. So we're going to take you all the way back to the Second World War and all the way through to today. Enjoy. Lieutenant Colonel Collins, Skate, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on this morning. No, not a problem at all. Welcome to the Warfare Podcast. It's great to have you on. A genuine, bona fide practitioner expert on the jet fighter. Tell us a little bit about your role in the U.S. Air Force. So right now, I fly with a group called the 64th Aggressors, and our job is to uh, know, teach, and replicate our Blue Air Forces, our combat air forces on all our adversary tactics. So what we do is we study the tactics and the techniques and the procedures of any adversary that we may face in uh, air combat, and we replicate those threats in uh, realistic training, in the most realistic training that we have here in the Air Force. 
Uh, so we're lucky enough here in southern Nevada to have a big empty desert just north of the base, and that's kind of our playground. And uh, units will come in for exercises such as red flag and other exercises, and they'll come out here and we'll practice our large force employment and integration. Really, it's a key piece of that. So we're talking anywhere from 80 to 100 aircraft in the sky all at the same time with advanced air threats represented by us in the 64th aggressors flying F-16s. We recently stood up the 65th aggressors, which are flying F-35s. So that's for, you know, they're really advanced uh, air threat. And then we also have uh, simulated surface air missile sites located all throughout the range. So they're not only fighting their way through an advanced air threat, but they're also fighting themselves through a advanced integrated air defense, simulated integrated air defense out here. And they're practicing all the missions of the Air Force. So they're practicing air-to-air superiority. They're practicing global strike. They're practicing combat search and rescue. Basically anything that we would be expected to face in a real life air war. That's what we're out here practicing and preparing them for. So do you pit the F-16 against the latest generation F-35s to test their capability against a previous generation jet fighter? Not so much for previous generation jet fighter, but if you look at just the numbers across the board, they're just mostly fourth generation aircraft. The the fifth generation aircraft, the uh, United States Air Force, we have the most of them of any country by far, uh, but other countries are catching up. So um, China has the J-20, Russia has the Su-57, and they're constantly developing newer and newer aircraft. So whereas you know, the United States Air Force, if we were to go into war day one, we would have you know, the entire leading edge would be fifth generation aircraft. You know, our adversaries aren't quite there yet, but we're going to make sure that we're ready for them in case they do get there, um, that we're ready to fight them. In addition to the differences between the fourth and fifth generation aircraft, uh, the F-16s are also able to carry some advanced electronic attack pods. So we have jamming pods that we fly with in the aggressors that the rest of the Air Force do not fly with. And they're very advanced and they're very tailorable and we can change them based off what we're fighting and what we expect to fight, which gives them much more of a challenge. Because rather than going in there, you know, fifth gen versus fourth gen, now they're going in there against a fourth gen with a advanced jamming pod that we're specifically targeting some of their capabilities with. Okay, so we're talking about things like fourth gen, fifth gen. I'm sure we'll even talk about even sixth generation fighters. You know, full disclosure, I work on drone warfare and actually a lot to do with the history of precision warfare. So maybe we'll talk about whether or not in the future these sort of jet fighters will have a pilot like your good self inside it. And (laughs) I'm sure they will. But let's, I feel like we're skipping ahead far too much. This is a history podcast. So let's go all the way back to this first generation jet fighter. Where would we start? Oh, man. So unfortunately, we'd actually start in uh, Germany. So Nazi Germany during uh, World War II, they developed the Messerschmitt M262, which was the first combat jet fighter to ever see battle. And talk about a surprise when you're out there flying around in a piston-powered aircraft to see this jet that can you know, accelerate and climb and do things a lot better than you. And oh, by the way, you take off the big drag piece on the front, the propeller, so all the P-factor and drag and everything that comes along, all the torque that comes along with flying a propeller aircraft. Now you don't have that anymore. Now you just have a jet. You know, the early jet fighters used very simple jet engines, so they're nothing like the jets that we fly with today, and they had very simple armament as well. So even though it was a a leap in generation when it comes to the engine performing it, they were still using 30-millimeter cannons. You know, they're essentially using gun only at the time because the missiles that we know and use today weren't invented yet. So when it came down to it, these early Luftwaffe jets, these Messerschmitts, 
they were just introduced a bit too late to be decisive and although the technology in terms of speed and jet power was there there wasn't the weapons to actually make that a really important contributing factor is that what we're saying yes yeah that's exactly what we're saying and you know something goes down to the the pilot as well you no know, we see that in today's you know in parallel in today's that you could have better technology you know on paper the airplane can look better but it really comes down to the experience of the pilot flying the airplane and the truth is just the early jets didn't give you that much margin over P-51s, P-47s, P-38s, no, the, not the jets, but the combat aircraft at the time. Either way, I mean, if you're in your Spitfire and you look out the, the side of your window and you've got one of those out there, it still wouldn't fill me with joy. Correct, yeah. And I have to imagine if you got close to one, if you passed at the merge going head to head, the difference between hearing that the, en- the rotary engines versus you know, hearing this shrieking jet go by, that's probably a whole other piece of you know, what was that? What was that noise? You no, know, Where's its propeller? I imagine the first people who saw those were pretty scared the first time they saw them. So when do the Allies start to react to this? When does the US start to produce their first jet fighters? Yeah, so our first jet fighter was produced in 1942, and that was the uh, P-59 Air Comet. And it was actually a pretty unsuccessful program. So it was successful in the terms of we were able to produce a jet fighter, you know, an airplane that flew with a jet and had some armament on it. But when they did the fly-offs in 1944, they pit them up against P-38s and P-47s. And fortunately, they didn't do very well. So it was a good proof of concept in terms of you know creating a jet and flying a jet and getting it to that point of technology. But it was determined that it would not be useful on the battlefield. And I don't believe that they ever even saw combat. So when it was put against rotor planes, it was losing out? It was, correct. This is interesting, because this period of history from, you know, 1945, just after the war onwards, that you do have this strange air power dynamic, where you have these rotor-based planes against jet fighters. You know, in the Korean War, you're seeing Corsairs against MiGs, which is a very short-lived, I assume, and uh, and, and strange period of time. Correct, yeah, and it's some of the more advanced, you know, the basic jet fighters can be defined by centrifugal jet engines. They did have afterburners, but very crude, rudimentary afterburners. And then they, interestingly enough, when they first started developing them, they developed them with straight wings. So aerodynamically, the airplane itself wasn't even really fully equipped to handle the power of the jet aircraft. And it wasn't until they started sweeping the wings back that you really saw the advantage of the higher speed that the jets give you. And that was a Soviet innovation, wasn't it? It was, yeah. The MiG-15 was the first one. So you know, after the P-59, your next you know, U.S. fighter would be the P-80. And that was, you know, P-80 was the pursuit version or the fighter version, uh, which would turn into. But then you also had the T-33, which is the first jet trainer for the Air Force. And so they basically looked the same. The T-33 just had two seats, and I don't believe it had a cannon on it. But that's what the Air Force used to train their cadre of jet pilots you know, moving into the future and moving throughout the Korean War. So the P-80 and then uh, followed by the F-86. And really the F-86 in my mind is like the first, you know, you think Korean War, you think F-86 versus MiG-15. And that was really, truly the dawn of, of the jet age. And that's even when we start seeing the air-to-air missiles, starting with heat-seeking missiles first and then eventually radar missiles. I've got to agree with you. I think that jet fighters that are actually fully operational, and I think the key thing here is competitive with the Soviets, has to come through those second-generation 
F-86 Sabres. So these are rolled out in 1949. Do we start to then see a real acceleration of the fighter jet program based upon just how important they were in the Korean War? You know, when do we start to see a movement through to more sophisticated third generation fighters? That's a great point. So moving from that second to the third generation fighter, we enter to what we call the Century Series in the Air Force. And, you know, there's a ton of airplanes, the F-100, F-101, F-104, F-105, all 100, which is why I call them the Century Series. So this really came into a time of rapid development, rapid acceleration. We start introducing radars into them, so fire control radars. You also start incorporating a lot more self-protection. So you start seeing self-protection jammers. You start seeing radar warning and receivers. You start seeing the chaff and the flare self-protection system. So you can, if someone's shooting a missile that's looking for your engine because it's looking for a hot heat source, now you press a button in your airplane and out shoots a flare that's this big, huge heat source. And now the missile sees the flare versus your engines and you decoy the missile that way. Uh, same way with chaff that's designed to defeat a host radar. So they're out there looking for radar returns. And now you just throw out basically a, a bundle of aluminum foil or as you would say, aluminium, I think, uh, (laughs) foil into the air. And now the radar, you know, that is highly radar reflective. And now the radar is biting off on the chaff versus your airplane, which is just basically flowing in the jet stream. So, you know, we have the the F-100, the F-101, the F-104, which is a, it's a crazy airplane. If you've ever seen it, it's basically a, is this the starfighter? The starfighter. Yep. It's a huge airplane with tiny, tiny wings. And it was meant to just do one thing and it was just go fast and intercept Russian jets. And so now I've seen one in real life. The Italians actually flew them. Uh, I think they were the last country to fly them. And I saw one when I was in living in Italy. And I mean, it's just, we're talking just the whole thing is just engine with little tiny wings, little tiny cockpit, but like I said, it was built to just do one thing very well, and that was to intercept a, a high-speed Russian aircraft. The F-105, you know, that was kind of the workhorse of the Vietnam War. You hear a lot about the F-4, which was also a very important jet aircraft in the Vietnam War. But those two together, the F-105 being kind of the more air-to-ground focus is more of a fighter-bomber, where the F-4 was kind of more the air-to-air role. And then you start to see the emergence there actually starting as far back as the F-100 of the suppression of enemy air defense role. So, you know, as jets continue to evolve and proliferate on the battlefield, you also now had surface-to-air missile sites that were important because countries recognized, you know, air power, one of the tenets of air power is that we can go attack the centers of gravity. We don't need to attack fielded forces in the field. We can go straight to the leadership and the capital or, you know, strategic things deep inside a country. Whereas previous warfare, you know, you line up on the battlefields and you're kind of fighting fielded frontline forces. So with that advantage, they say, hey, we need to protect ourselves. And they started developing surface-to-air missile systems. And then we started creating aircraft that would now go after those surface-to-air missile systems. So, you know, they turn their radars on shoot at the airplanes, we have a missile that can now target a radar and we shoot back and it's kind of a cat and mouse game of who's going to shoot the other person first. So would that be called a fighter bomber jet or is that something different? You know, is there a difference between a kind of pure fighter jet and a fighter bomber? So in the U.S. Air Force, we don't really use fighter bomber in the designations. Um, most aircraft nowadays are multi-role, and that's an important piece of the puzzle because, you know, as the technology improves and as things get better, things get more expensive. So we can no longer afford to have an aircraft 
that can only do one singular mission. So the name of the game in today's and you know, every aircraft that you'll see moving forward, you know, starting really with the F-22, the Strike Eagle, the F-16, and Ford is at their multi-role. And you see the airplanes that are not multi-role are the ones who are typically first on the cutting blocks. If you look at the F-15C model, that's kind of on its way out in the Air Force inventory because it only does air-to-air. It doesn't have any air-to-ground roles. And then the A-10, you know, that you could do a whole podcast on the A-10 my personal opinion about the A-10 is that it's one of the sweetest jets ever built. And what they do, they do it better than anyone out there. But the truth is, when we have a million things to pay for, the high-level DOD, it's just hard to justify an aircraft that can only do one thing like that. So the F-105, they could carry missiles. They had internal gun. They could shoot, but they were used mostly for interdiction, for bombing downtown. And there's actually a really interesting operation called Operation Bolo, and that was spearheaded by Colonel Robin Old, who, you know, if you ask any pilot in the Air Force, is the most famous, the most successful pilot. He was a triple ace, flew in World War II, Korea, and Vietnam, starting out P-51s all the way through the F-4 and everything pretty much in between. But what we saw is that the F-105, when they were you know, heavy with bombs going out there and do their bombing campaigns, they were pretty easy targets for the MiG-21s, which was kind of the, the newer uh, Soviet design, no single engine, really fast, pretty small, hard to see. And so they were pretty vulnerable. And so when the F-105s would take off and they would you know, use their call signs, they'd use the same call signs all the time, the Vietnamese would intercept those radio calls and they would launch the MiGs and go down there and shoot down our 105s. So what Robin Olds did is he took a whole bunch of F-4s that were all loaded out with air-to-air missiles and air-to-air configuration ready to go. And he basically took off using the F-105 call signs. So when these MiGs heard the call signs, they said, hey, you know, they're launching the thuds, go. And uh, when they got airborne, they were met with the F-4s. And so that day we shot down nine MiG-21s, which was pretty high attrition for a single day loss in the war. So... That's a good example of uh, deception and creative outside-the-box thinking that put us in a position of advantage. All this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit, I'll be asking, who really were the Vikings? How did they become so successful in spreading across northern Europe and beyond from the late 8th to the 11th centuries? What are the stories we tell about them and what legacy did they leave behind for us today? I'm Dr Kat Jarman and throughout September I'll be examining the big questions about the Vikings with a host of experts and answering all of your burning questions about the Viking Age as well. So, for everything you always wanted to know about the Vikings, subscribe to Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So what was the decisive factor there, the difference between those particular aircraft? What was it about the F-4 at this point? Was it that you know, attempts at supersonic radar, air-to-air missiles. Was that what gave it the decisive advantage over the MiGs? Yeah, I think it was the amount of air-to-air missiles that they carried, the fact that they had two engines, so and they weren't burdened with bombs hanging from their wings. You know, they took off with just a max loadout of missiles. So I don't know what the missiles at the time weigh, but the missiles of today weigh anywhere from 100 to 300 pounds, depending on what type of missile you're carrying versus the bombs, the smallest bomb you're going to carry is a 500 pound bomb, but most likely a thousand or 2000 pound bomb. So you're talking much less weight on the aircraft. You're talking two engines. You're going out there with a radar that's optimized for air to air. It's not really looking at the ground and they're just much more prepared to get into a a turning dogfight or what we call a BFM engagement. So basic fighter maneuvers when when you fight one-on-one with another aircraft. So the decisive factor is that the the new jet was specifically designed to engage in dogfights. But so what does this mean for this current generation of jet fighters, which are designed with a multi-role purpose in mind? They can bomb, they can dogfight, they can do pretty much everything that you need them to do. It, it, have they been developed in that way because the US Air Force has not had to face a peer-to-peer competitor such as China or Russia, face-to-face in a generation. And so it's naturally progressed towards these multi-purpose fighters. But in reality, if you were to face a war against China or Russia, you might have to go back towards engineering some of these planes purely for dogfighter roles. So they have that agility, that lightweight, that speed, that maneuverability. Yeah, so what you see um, with the F-35 that was designed as a joint strike fighter. It's designed to replace the F-16, the F-15E, and the A-10, which are all primarily air-to-ground useful. They're dual role, except for the A-10, but mostly air-to-ground. And what you see with that one is that, you know, for a day one of the war, you can keep it completely clean with no external stores on board, all internal carry of their missiles, and you can use it in an air-to-air role. And then once, you know, that all the airplanes have been shot down or it's a more permissive environment, you can actually load up external stores. So it's called beast mode is what we call it. Uh, when you see an F-35 with all their external stores on, so they can carry bombs externally. They can carry while still carrying missiles internally. As a matter of fact, yeah, I flew on Wednesday and when I taxied by a whole row of F-35s getting ready to take off, they had the external suspension equipment on the wings with bombs hanging. They're going to go out and practice dropping bombs from their wings. 
Similarly, the F-22, you know, that was built to be the air dominance fighter. Again, it is multi-role, but it leans into the air-to-air role. That's, I'd say, 80 to 90% of its function is air-to-air. And it was built to be a dogfighter with thrust vectoring, the two engines, you know, all the things that it has that makes it turn very well against another aircraft. That being said, you can still load bombs internal into the weapons bay and drop bombs using it. And they've been used in combat. We've seen in kind of the CENTCOM AOR F-22s flying in the country and dropping bombs from their aircraft. So the squadrons themselves have their focus area on what they're going to do and day, you know, day by day in the role. So, for example, during a red flag exercise, you might have the F-22s being the leading edge for the fighter sweep to go in there and escort the rest of the strike train. But you'll probably have F-35s on that leading edge as well, participating in air-to-air and then also participating in the suppression of enemy air defenses. So the key here is you can almost think of them like a a transformer or something. They're super adaptable. They can be loaded up in that beast mode, like you say, when they need to be, or stripped right back for one specific role. Correct. That's a, yep, And that's exactly what I'm saying. And as we look forward to the sixth generation fighters, I mean, this is all cutting edge stuff. They don't have a designator. You know, in the U.S. Air Force, our sixth generation fighters can be called NGAD, which is next generation air dominance fighter. And that is going to be basically designed to replace the F-22, if you could believe that, because you you think of an F-22, you think of the most modern fighter out there. But they have come out and said that a couple things about NGAD, it's going to be a family of systems. So don't expect it just to be one singularly fighter. There could possibly, in your area of expertise, could possibly even be combat wingmen, loyal wingmen type uh, unmanned uh, vehicles associated with that. Uh, the chief staff, the Air Force General Brown, has come out and said that a manned fighter will be a component of NGAD. So there will be a fighter jet that is going to be super advanced that's going to be up there with a human in the loop. You know, you might have one family that's very specifically to go out there and do a fighter sweep or do an escort role. And you might have one that's, you know, a package that you put together that's you know, designed for suppression of enemy air defenses. There's very few things I still get very excited about in the Air Force and I'm dying to know what it's going to look like, what it's going to consist of. You know, you hear people talking about it because, you know, these acquisition programs take so long. I believe 2030 is the the kind of the target year for NGAD to come up. I'm just hoping that, you know, one of these days I'll, I'll wake up and turn on the news and, you know, they'll have pictures of it or you know, renderings or, you know, some more information because I'm curious myself what that next generation of aircraft is going to come with. Well, you mentioned a couple of terms there, human on the loop and loyal wingman. Am I right in thinking that a loyal wingman role for a drone would be a jet-powered drone that could go at supersonic speeds that could sit off the wing of a, of a jet aircraft, and then it would be the human pilot in the jet aircraft with, let's say, even multiple drones, maybe three or six off each wing, that it would then mimic, or it would be controlled by the human pilot. And then when you go into battle not only are those loyal wingmen able to draw enemy fire, and so you're protecting the central crewed aircraft, the piloted aircraft in the middle, but it's also a force multiplier because those same loyal wingmen drones can fire missiles or be sent in as a kind of kamikaze aircraft if needed. 
Yeah. And just upfront, full disclosure, this is well outside my expertise. (laughs) But that being said, what you said is what I imagine the future of air power to look like. Yeah, these combat drones that are controlled by someone. Think of a quarterback on a football team who's kind of directing you do this, you do this, handing out tasks, you know, you know, say I'm the pilot and NGAD, you know, 10 to 15 years from now, I can possibly designate something on my radar or on my scope and then now assign that to, you know, one of these loyal wingmen, UCAVs out there. Or like you said, if it's a, if it's a SAM site, you know, surface air missile site, rather than, you know, you go fly in there and put yourself in danger. Now you can assign these drones and maybe you assign one to do electronic attack, maybe assign one to do a kinetic attack with shooting a missile or either air to air or air to surface missile, or you just say, Hey, protect me or you name it, fly out in front of me and deploy a wall of chaff. So the enemy radar can't, can't see through it. Can't see my advanced. It's interesting. Just the evolution of warfare you know, I mentioned earlier a cat and mouse game. You have countermeasures and then you have counter countermeasures and then you have counter counter countermeasures and counter 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 countermeasures. And so for everything we develop, so for example, we develop advanced electronic scanned array radars, which is kind of the newer radar technology. It basically takes the old mechanical radar, which was a, a dish in an airplane that was physically sweeping side to side, it would move up side to side, move back down side to side, and you turn it into a flat based array. And each node on that, which is thousands of nodes, is its own steerable beam that can basically act independent. And you have a ton of these working together. So as we develop our radar technology, the enemy develops their electronic attack. And they're, you know, they have jamming pods that are trying to negate the advantage of having that radar. On the same token, with stealth technology, you know, stealth isn't perfect. It doesn't make you completely invisible to radar. And when you talk about the spectrum of radars, I mean, you're talking like a huge part of the electronic spectrum. So as we develop you know, stealth, our enemies are trying to find new and creative ways to find these stealth aircraft you know, without maybe using their radar, you know, using different technologies. And so using things like chaff, using things that help hide us, keep us hidden, or just add to the noise of the electronic spectrum. Those are the ways we're going to keep ourselves safe and keep those those edges. But it's just a constant back and forth. So we do something, our adversaries do something, vice versa. We see something out of them, we react to them in the same way. And again, bringing it back to what we do here at Nellis, that's a large part of what we do as aggressors is we study these things because we are facing a new generation of a pacing threat. This is no longer the U.S. Air Force that just has this significant technology advantage over our our adversaries. If you look at the Iraq war, the Iraqis were burying their airplanes in their sand because they knew if they left them in the open, we were going to bomb them with precision-guided munitions and that if they took off, we were going to shoot them down right away. And they had really no way to utilize their air power except to bury it and hope that the war ended and that they could unbury it, reconstitute them and have airplanes in the future. Now it's not that same thing. We talk about near peer and these pacing threat countries and people who are accelerating so rapidly. China, when I started in the Air Force 15 years ago, had a fleet of basically third generation fighters uh, and they had a lot of them but you know it's basically j7s and j8s and you know some old mig-21s and just these old soviet errors and fast forward to today their air force is a very very modern air force and they've taken 
Russian airplanes like the Sukhoi 27 and they, you know, they bought that and they licensed it. You know, they bought the rights to build that airplane and they turned it into the J-11 Bravo and they took that Russian airplane. They made it even better with their own Chinese improvements on it. And you just see that with the their J-10s, which is their own indigenously built um, kind of single engine fighter. It's kind of their equivalent of the F-16 sort of a, a lightweight fighter that they're going to have lots of numbers of all the way through their J-20, which is their fifth generation fighter. So the technology is moving faster than ever, which is why it's important as you know, we as an Air Force, we stay on top of that and train our air crews to be able to go out there and face that threat. Yeah, the, the J-20 is a supersonic stealth fighter. So when we look Correct. at this, you're right, we're at a generation now where China has just massively advanced its jet technology. And I get, well, this is what you do on a daily basis, right? You're analyzing what near peer competitors, as you said, are doing. And you're looking at these J20s. You're looking at, I don't know, the S34 perhaps in the Russian fleet. And you're trying to, how would you describe it? You called it a red flag exercise. So you're trying to test what the enemy would do and how you could persevere through that. But is it tantamount to, I guess, simulations, war simulations, war gaming? Not really. So the, the purpose of Red Flag, and this, uh, you know, for your history, buffs listening to the podcast, in the Vietnam War, it was discovered that if a young fighter pilot can make it through his first 10 combat sorties, his chance of surviving the entire war was exponentially greater. So basically, you know, all our losses, most of our losses that we took in Vietnam, especially from our young air crew, happened within their first 10 missions. And so in 1974, you know, after Vietnam was over, they looked at the numbers and said, man, like here we had like a great advantage over our adversaries. And then, you know, we kind of slumped there a little bit and we were taking great losses. And they looked at the data and they said, hey, man, this these first 10 flights into the battle are critical to give the air crew the skills and the knowledge and just kind of like the performance under pressure to be able to, to go the distance and survive. And so that's when they started the red flag exercise. And that was the whole point of it was to prepare the young, untested wingman for their first 10 combat sorties. And I very specifically remember my first red flag sorties as a young guy. And when I say this is realistic, it's down to the, the pit in the stomach. Like, you know, you have all the, you know, the things that you read about, you know, you have the AWACS out there, you have the J stars out there, you have tankers all over the place. All these jets are taking off in succession, just like nonstop for like an hour. You have jets taken off just one formation after another. And you're going out there and you're cutting across this giant, huge piece of airspace to go to the hold and you're holding and you're hearing all the coordination that are happening. You're hearing the lowdown and they're telling you what SAM sites are currently active, like what emissions they're detecting. And you're looking down at your map because you, you've planned it. You know what's going on. This is a big mission planning. And you're like, okay, this one's online. This one's online. You know, those are for strategic SAMs where you know their location, but they also have your tactical SAMs that, you know, that move around that you don't know that are unlocated. That Intel just says, hey, you know that we have SA6s or SA15s or SA8s out there and we don't know where they are. So just heads up for that. You know, as a guy who's an airplane, I'm going to want to know where those SA6s are so I can stay away from them or avoid them or, you know, ask for suppression of them. And so, you know, the feeling of hearing these things come online to, to have your radar warning receiver equipment light up 
because like I said, we have these simulators on the ground that will you know, simulate the radar emissions. So in the jet, it looks like the real thing is out there spiking you is what's called when they're locked onto you. And it does it. It gives you, you know, you have nerves and your performance degrades a little bit because, you know, you're, you just want to go out there and shoot your sword and you want to drop a bomb on your target and you want to get out there and you don't want to be called dead in the debrief. You want to survive it. And so that's, you know, that's why we have that is to inoculate the air crew. Um, so we're not using it to test out real world war plans. You know, it's not there to, uh, there's other exercises that they do that. And uh, those are more theater specific, depending on, you know, where you are in the world and what the main threat is. But the purpose of Red Flag is just to basically train our air crews in that way. And also what sets us apart from different air forces in the world is that we push our tactical decisions to the, the lowest level. So me as a captain, when I was doing my mission commander upgrade in charge of, you know, 60 to 80 aircraft on the blue side, those tactical decisions were pushed down to my level to change the game plan as I saw fit based off what we were seeing. So, you know, say we planned a strike route that went, you know, up to the north and cut to the left and all our targets were right there. We'll say we discovered an SA-6 or an SA-15 or some kind of mobile unplanned SAM was now in the middle of that strike route. I would have the power to say, hey, based off what I know and what I've planned and our contingencies that we've already briefed, we're going to go south and we're going to go southern route. And you know, we'll work with everyone, let the air-to-air players know, to work the escort, let the seed, everyone get on the same page and we go execute. And you know, that's, I would say... Um, in the Air Force, it's it's so true that the equipment, the toys that we have are so cool, um, cutting edge, but it's our people and our development of our people that makes us the greatest Air Force in the world. They're even seeing that today in the Russia-Ukraine conflict. You know, one of the strongest uh, things that the Ukrainians have going for them is a well-empowered NCO Corps, non-commissioned officer corps. And they learned that from training with you know, our Air Force and seeing how we treat our non-commissioned officers and how we will push things down to a low, lower level and empower them to make decisions. And we try to do that across the board, whether it's you know, fighting an air war or generating the aircraft, the maintainers who generate these aircraft at like breakneck speeds so we can basically do 24-hour around-the-world ops Basically, any any position in the Air Force, we try to push that authority down to the lowest level, allow them to make decisions, and that gives us just an immense amount of flexibility and adaptability out there on the battlefield. In contrast, you compare that to the Russians that are just you know centralized control, centralized command, top down. You know their pilots are a lot less able to think for themselves and make their own decisions. They're basically following the instruction of their command and control. You know, the people kind of tell them what to go around and they don't share the whole picture with them. They just give them the little piece of the puzzle and they say, Hey, this is what you're targeting. This is what you're doing. And that's all you need to know about. So and China's a little bit of a mix. You know, they've been watching us for a long time. They know how we fight and they emulate how we fight. I just don't think they fully understand the reasons why we do things the way we do. Um, so even though it might look like us, it's not exactly like us. And, you know, things, you know, taking it back to Robin Olds and Operation Bolo or John Boyd and, you know, Five Second Boyd or whatever it is, it's, it's kind of the creativity and the thinking outside the box and the the power and given to us as flight leads out there that really where we draw our strength and our real advantage from. Yeah. And with that in mind, I mean, just hearing you talk about all the information you have to process in your head and to compute and then make a decision. I mean, it sends my brain into a fog. So I can only imagine what it must be like and the unique skill set you have 
to be able to perform under that level of pressure. Now, I've got one final question for you, Skate. Out of all of those different aspects of jet fighter innovations throughout history, which do you think is the most important, the definitive innovation from that point in 1945 that we're talking about through to today? Oh, man. <laughs> I mean, there's just so many. Um, so I think where we are in the time slice of today, I think it's going to be the avionics and the sensors. The F-16 was built to be a day-only VFR fighter. So it was built to be basically a dogfighter, you know, nothing but lightweight. No, it was so lightweight, we don't even have a ladder on board. They purposely left out the ladder, and we use external ladders that we hook to the side. But we didn't want to put the extra weight of a built-in ladder because it was supposed to just be a, a dogfighter. And over the years, you know, we add sensors. We add the harm targeting sister pod. We add the... Um, sniper pod we add you know self-protection jammers we had more advanced radars you know when you look at fourth generation there's actually a sub designation fourth plus and fourth plus plus generation fighters so um you know fourth plus would be like a modern fighter that has gone through like a um, modern radar upgrade so it'd have the the avionics of a fifth gen but without the stealth and the super cruise and sensor fusion and the things that make a fifth gen a fifth gen and then you have the fourth plus plus which you know the su-35 is a russian aircraft that's considered a fourth plus plus because it's basically all the things all the avionics that you know a fifth gen aircraft would have but it's just not you know designed to be stealth um, so it has everything else basically in there, but the stealth and the super cruise. So I think in today's time slice, it's the advancement in avionics. Uh, and again, just going in my short 15 year career of what I started with when I was flying the F-16 to where we are today is pretty amazing. I would guess for the future leap in technology, what's more important coming down the line, obviously stealth was a game changer you know, that basically ushered in the new generation. But I think with the sixth generation, what you're going to see is incorporating all the fifth gen stuff, but you're going to start seeing the next generation of jet engines. Because right now, one of the problems with the fighter jet is how do we get to the fight? So say a China scenario, if we ever had to go defend ourselves against China, you have the entire Pacific ocean to cross, which requires a lot of tankers, a lot of support. Your takeoff from bases, you know, spread out throughout, partner nations in the region, but it's still the, the burden of distance is there. So having engines that are a lot more efficient, that are a lot more powerful, that can, you know, use the gas more efficiently uh, to put your range higher and your loiter time higher. I think that's going to be really critical moving forward. And the Air Force has some programs right now, the next generation of adaptive engines. Um, you know, people have associated that program with NGAD. Um, again, I, I don't know anything about NGAD other than what you can read on the news. But I think that's going to be the next big leap is the engine technology and how we get there faster, more efficiently, less reliant on other support assets because anything that's supporting you is now a vulnerability. So they might not have to shoot down the F-22. They might only have to shoot down the tanker that's dragging the F-22 to the fight. And now you have this really high-tech advanced fighter that can't get themselves to the fight to fight. So I think that's my answer. I think you summed it up, didn't you, when you said this is all a kind of cat and mouse game throughout history. Because this history you've told us of the jet fighter from the P-80 all the way through to the F-35 and even what the sixth generation might look like, it shows us how the history of the U.S. Air Force and its jet fighters 
are really a history of American warfare. It's responding to each conflict that the US is involved in, the new threats that it faces, the new technologies of its adversaries. And that's exactly what we're seeing today. If we need to get to the fight faster in the Pacific, for example, you know, uh, you haven't said it, but we can definitely kind of start to fill in the pieces about, you know, what's going on in Taiwan today, then we're starting to see the jet fighters of the current generation and future generation, again, responding to the threats we're seeing in the world. And that is truly fascinating. So, Skate, thank you so much for your time today and uh, and for taking us through this uh, you know, pretty remarkable history. You, you are always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. You're welcome. And, uh, you know, this is, like I said, an exciting time in the Air Force on September 18th of this year, we're celebrating our 75th anniversary. So that's a big deal. You know, 75 years of airmen, you know, taking to the skies and defending our nation uh, using air power. And uh, General Brown, you know, said it best. He said, "We need to innovate or die." You know, that's basically we need to think creatively. We need to change the way we've been doing business. Um, so that we can stay ahead of, of our peers and that we can be successful in any future conflicts. Other things that might be interest to you, uh, the UK is also working on a sixth generation fighter. I read an article just the other day that the US and the UK might combine their efforts in development of the sixth generation fighter. I didn't read it other than the headline. So as soon as I hang up with you, I'll probably go read that. But, you know, it is exciting. Exciting time to be in the Air Force for sure. Um, Nellis Air Force Base is just you know, the fighter pilot's playground. It's the home of the fighter pilot. It's the home of weapon school. So when you think of the most advanced tacticians in the world, you know, these guys are getting doctorate level education and air power. And they, they have a saying of you know, how Nellis goes, the rest of the, the world goes. Because this is the place where we develop the tactics and it spreads out and proliferates throughout ourselves. The red flag exercises that we do, two out of the three of them are with our coalition partners. So you always have the RAF here. You always have um, the Australians here. Um, there's a lot of countries that come often. There's some countries that come every once in a while. I, I think we had the uh, Indian Air Force out here for one of them one time, which was pretty amazing. They brought their Sukhoi Su-30 M- MKIs, which, you know, for most people who were there for that red flag, it was the first time that they had ever seen a Sukhoi in real life up close. So... Like I said, I, I'm very fortunate to be able to do what I do and fly at Nellis. We have operational test and evaluation. So when we talk about the new radars, you know, they're putting AESA radars in F-16s right now. And I can walk down the street and you know, there's a fleet of six or seven aircraft down there that have them in the noses. And I can go watch the tape and talk to the pilots and say, hey, what are you seeing um, you know, how are you guys changing the tactics? Because that's what they do. They develop the tactics that the, the instructors that graduate from the weapons school will go teach and that the rest of the combat air force will go execute. So in my opinion, there's no better place in the world to fly an airplane. And I appreciate you having me on the show and being able to highlight the air force and uh, just really appreciate it. Not a problem at all, Skate. Like I said, you're always welcome. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for listening, but before you go, I've got a very exciting special offer for Warfare listeners. Over on History Hit TV, we're building the world's best history channel on demand, and we want to share it with you. When you sign up for a monthly subscription using the code WARFARE, you'll get two things. You'll get two weeks free, followed by your first three months with 50% off. We release two exclusive new documentaries every week, including my new series, Traces of War. 
And you'll get access to every episode of our ever-growing podcast network, ad-free. So you can listen to Warfare without the interruptions, but also to all our shows like Matt and Cat on Gone Medieval or Tristan on The Ancients. To sign up, just follow the link in the show notes. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited-edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.